This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The Division of Arts and Humanities at the University of California, San Diego, presents Degrees of Health and Well-Being, a series of public lectures featuring leading faculty from multiple disciplines in history, science, medicine, and social science, each sharing their latest groundbreaking research, impacting the quality of life for you, your family, your region, and your world. It's a huge pleasure to introduce Larry Smarr this evening. He is Harry E. Gruber Professor of Computer Science and Engineering. He came to UC San Diego in 2000, having been the founding director of the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. And here he is the founding director of what we call, in shorthand, Cal IT2, or Squared. And that stands for California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology. And I have to read it because I can never remember all of those big words. He is a computer scientist by training. Most computer scientists probably do not find themselves moving into the field of healthcare butting heads with some of the people in the School of Medicine. But it makes sense when you consider the title of Professor Smarr's presentation this evening, when we're dealing with orders of magnitude of hundreds of trillions, and considering the amount of information you're dealing with with numbers like that, and the ability to process such numbers of information, something that has come to be possible only recently, it kind of makes sense that somebody who shows expertise in big data should come to this field, and the idea is to revolutionize that field. He's involved in PRISM at UCSD. That's a big data freeway project. He's on the scientific advisory board for MD Revolution. That's right over here on Town Center Drive and One of the missions of that organization is to empower people with personalized, actionable data. We'll be hearing about that this evening. He's also on the advisory board of Future in Review, which is an annual conference on the intersection of technology and the economy. So please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Larry Smarr, whose topic tonight is Know Thyself, Quantifying Your Human Body, and 100 trillion microbes. Larry. Thank you very much. Appreciate that kind introduction. The concept of knowing oneself is thousands of years old. It's one of the most fundamental aspects of civilization. This was engraved on the Temple of Apollo. Temple of Apollo is no longer with us, Uh, but uh, it has been down through the ages. This is actually from Germany, a beautiful building in Germany. And know thyself, I think, has been thought of as a introspection, um, lots of different approaches, but 
what I'm going to try to show you is that with the revolutions that have come by the exponential decrease in the cost of sequencing your genomes, the software of your life, um, we are going to know ourselves as humans really for the first time. Now, when we started CalIT2 back in 2000, we had a vision. This is a slide that I actually used 10 years, uh, 15 years ago. That device on the young lady is a body media device. It was the you know, precursor of things like this Fitbit uh, that I'm wearing now. You can see why eventually body media was um, unsuccessful in the marketplace and was acquired by another company because people didn't like grapefruit you know, on their arms. Um, but it was, by the way, more accurate than any of the things that are out there today. But the point is that we foresaw three years before the introduction of cellular internet into the United States in, 2000, in 2003, three years later from this slide, that there would be wireless internet everywhere. We take it for granted now, but in 2000 it wasn't there. And Qualcomm, of course, introduced that uh, and it um, has changed everything. Um, but the idea was we also understood there would be sensors like Wireless. How many people are doing have some sort of sensor on them? Wireless uh, sensor, right? So uh, we assumed that that would be developing, and we had a model for this, which is the automobile, because when I grew up, you knew when your car had a chronic disease because smoke came out from under the the hood, and you take it into the garage, and they that'd be like the hospital, and they'd say oh, you have a big problem. We're going to have to put the chain around the engine and haul it out. You probably burned the, the rings, you know. That's not what we do today. The reason is, during the 90s, more microprocessors went into your cars than went into personal computers. And what that means is today, every vital sign of your car is recorded minute to minute, not because there's anything wrong with it, but so that you know how it's doing when you compare it against the population of the whole, as a whole, which the dealerships do through a network to all the other cars of your make and model and year, the spark plug, the brakes, the everything. And if they see, if it's in the middle of the bell curve, that is, that is, you know yourself in relation to the population of your peers, in this case cars, then. You can't afford to put a human in, you just say fine. If it's off to the edge of the bell curve, there's some thing that tells the person, they don't know why, pick this thing, module out, put this module in, you're good to go. And 200,000 miles later, you're just fine. So I believe that this is the model with the advent of all these sensors for our bodies and the wireless internet that we will begin to do for ourselves, leading to personalized medicine. But it's more than that. Not only will you be able to read out the time to time state of all the vital signs of your body, but we, for the first time, will be able to read the software inside every cell in your body, which is the DNA. That's software. It's, it's a code along an you know, organic molecule, but it's, it's read off, and that reading um, produces from fertilization to an adult uh, all the developments in you. Imagine that through all human history, we didn't know, we couldn't read 
the software that made us alive. And now it can. That's why it's such a historic change. But because there's six billion bases on the human DNA, and as we'll see, uh, vastly more genes in the microbiome, it produces so much data that without supercomputers and, and, and the kind of big data techniques, artificial intelligence you're hearing about today that Google and Facebook and Microsoft use, uh, you can't really read out what's there. To be precise, this is a log scale, so powers of 10 from one at the bottom, standing on the scale in 2000, that's how I knew my body. It's down sky, I'm this many pounds. But by 2005, I'd been started to take blood variables. I was up to 100 variables defining the state of my body, my cholesterol, my, you know, how my heart is doing, liver, and everything else. By 2008, I was an early user of 23andMe, and I had, by that point, it measures a million points along your DNA, which we'll get to in a minute. And then finally, now I've got billions of points defining my body, and they change every time I eat something. So to know myself, I got to know billions of numbers. Now, the, um, what I found is I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I thought I was healthy. I was wanting to lose weight, and I was using this kind of thing to do it. But what I found is once I really knew myself, I had a chronic incurable disease, an autoimmune disease that I had no idea I had when I started this. So the reason I'm doing this, and a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say you want to do this at home, but what I'm doing is I believe this is what everyone will do in the future, and someone needs to do it first, even though it's complicated and expensive and so forth, but we, we have to get going, and more and more people are joining this quantification. Now, you've seen all these gadgets. I've used them all and quite a few others uh, to again, uh, quantify, not, well, I feel good, or I feel that, or I want to eat this, or, but quantify it. You can't do science if you can't quantify things, and I'm a lifetime scientist. So I just started using these more and more. To give you an example, uh, this is from Sunday, uh, and it's this little Fitbit uh, Charge HR measures moment to moment my heart rate, which you see at the bottom graph. Um, and up at the top, it measures uh, caloric burn, uh, how much your exertion. You can see when I went on the elliptical, when I was walking across campus. Um, you can see that when I'm sleeping, just before I wake up, my pulse is down at 42. And when I'm on the elliptical, it's up to 137. Now, I didn't know any of this. And now I have it every day. And it's on my smartphone. And what that tells me is when I started, I was doing, like a lot of Americans, one or 2,000 steps a day. I'm now doing eight to 10,000 steps a day. And that has a direct impact on the, your health uh, long term. It's one of the most important things, for instance, to avoid Alzheimer's is uh, aerobic exercise. And so I changed my whole lifestyle to, in, in, and I stopped driving, any, I walk everywhere on campus, I, you know, I'd never drive my car to another place, and just lots of little things, all because of this feedback. Because before, I didn't know the numbers. Now I do. 
Furthermore, I can compare this to the population. So culturally, you're embedded in a culture, you're embedded in a human population, and it's only by comparing to that that you know where you are. You know? And so that is, all this goes up to the cloud for Fitbit, and the cloud has thousands, tens of thousands of, of people, and you can compare yourself, 65 year old male, 67 actually, but you know, they don't get that. <laughs> anyway, and so, and so here's things I didn't know. So I started this a little over four years ago. I've walked 5,500 miles in that four years. That's from here to Bangor, Maine and back. And it, and it calculates, you know, when you're climbing stairs, if every 10 feet up you get one stair, it doesn't count when you go down. You have to, you know, be exerting. Well, I just wonder how many stairs I've gone. I, six times the height of Mount Everest. Who knew? So this is uh, from the Tech Review article on me a couple of years ago. Uh, this is in our CalIT2 lab. We actually have an exercise physiology lab, and that's me uh, getting uh, my heart rate and my breathing, uh, oxygenation, everything measured in a stress test. Um, uh, because I could get more data that way. And this is where I first started being called the patient of the future. And what I'm doing is the rest of the lecture is going to go inside me. So it's, there's a ton of things which I don't need to tell you about. Um, just Las Vegas, the Consumer Electronics Show was full of a zillion new gadgets, right? But they're all measuring the outside. What about if we could do that for our insides? You know, like Amazing Voyage back in the 60s, the movie, you know? Um, so this is me over in uh, Qualcomm Institute in Atkinson Hall. This is each of these black lines is a high-definition screen like you'd like to have for your home theater. There's 32 of them. And each of those graphs is a different variable from my blood or stool over the last 15 years. Each dot is a blood test or a stool sample that I put in the mail and send off and get back numbers. Uh, and these are things like your cholesterol, your, uh, you know, your uh, liver enzymes, uh, all of these things. And if they're, um, if you, again, compare yourself like the car to the population, there's an upper and lim lower limit for healthy. So, you know, like the last time you went to the doctor, they did test. They said, oh, this is high or this is low. We need to look at that, right? But look how the fluctuations. Which day you happen to do that on? is not going to tell you very much about actually how varied your numbers can be. And you'll notice that some are yellow and red. Those are the ones in which the yellow ones are in which my average across that graph is uh, one to ten times above the upper limit for healthy, and the red is above ten to a hundred times the upper limit for healthy. I had no idea. And so um, this is one blood draw. Um, I do that every quarter. Yeah, you know, I guess I don't do this at home. But, um, you know, I need the data. And the data is inside me. Well, one of the variables, which is I, I find it hard to get doctors to do, they should be, everyone should be monitored for this. It's called complex reactive protein. It just measures are you inflamed or not in your blood? And you see that little green line? All the dots should be below that green line if you're healthy, less than one. 
My wife, for instance, all our little dots are below that, right? And here back in 2007, 2008, I noticed I was at five and then 10 and then 15. And I went to my doctor and I said, look, there's something terrible going on inside of me. We need to do something about that. And they said, oh, that's terrible. How do you feel? And I said, well, fine. And they said, well, why are you here? I said, well, because I have data. And they said, well, what use is that? I'm a doctor. What's wrong with you? You only come here when you're sick. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to be much sicker. And, and so actually, when it got to the, pike speak, uh, the, the peak of the curve, I had the most intense pain I've ever had doubled over in just about here. And they said, oh, must be a diverticulus or something. Here's some antibiotics, so you'll be fine. And I said, well, you don't want to understand why this is happening? This is, what's the science? What is wrong with me? What is causing this to happen? Well, um, here's what happened after that. And before you know it, instead of 15 times, I was up to almost 30 times. And by the way, if you're, say, five times above chronically, that quadruples your future chance of heart disease, for instance. And I'm 30. So I knew there was something going on, so I started teaching myself biomedical science by reading the literature, because I've you know, been writing scientific papers all my life. I mean, how hard can it be? So, uh, anywho, um, at the same time, I realized that I could be getting, I could do stool test. Now, I had no idea why you would do a stool test, but I noticed that the names for the variables that they were measuring weren't on my blood test, so it was new data. And that was really it. <laughs> that was my motivation. And so I started doing them, and what you can see here is, see that? zero and see the green line? You're supposed to be under the green line, below seven. That's 900 at the peak, 124 times the upper limit for healthy. So at this point, and this is noticed back in 2011, I, I started reading the scientific paper. I said, what is lactoferrin? That's this thing. Um, and it turns out that it is the sensitive and specific indicator that you have inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune, chronic, incurable disease. Not, you know, I'm like early 60s. I said, how can it be, that's a lifetime thing, how can it be that I had that and I didn't know? But because I measured, I found out that that must be the case. Um, so uh, I moved at that point from, uh, to UCSD, and my doctor, who's one of the top people in, in that field, said, let's do an MRI. Well, this is what MRIs normally look like. See, there's your liver. They do it by these slices, right? Black and white slices. There's your upper large intestine. There's your small intestine. But you notice that looks a little weird. And that's the so-called sigmoid colon. Well, as soon as I got out of the MRI, I said to the guys, this is back in 2012, um, give me the data. You just, you know, I, I, my body provided you the data. Thank you. Now give it to me. 
took it back to Cal IT2, gave it to my guys who are, we've been doing virtual reality for decades, and they made it into a 3D fly-through. And I've given many, many tours, hundreds of tours of the inside of my body since then. <laughs> but you'll notice this, where the, the, the colon, you know, comes up, over, and down, and then across, and then back through and out, back. And, and this part here is the sigmoid. And you can see that there's this funny twist in it and so forth that goes through the, that's the, where the aorta in red splits into the two arteries that go down your legs. Um, and at that point I said, well, don't we have one of those 3D printers? And so can't we just print it? And, and so there's my disease sigmoid colon. This is where it comes down and then goes across. And in fact, you'll notice that people over 60, 50% of them have diverticula. That's, if you've ever seen, I don't know how many of you do, I have the 45 minute video of my last colonoscopy. Though. <laughs> but if you were to watch it, which you can't because you're out, but that's why you have to tell them to record it. Um, uh, the diverticula are just little, like little cave entrances on the surface of your colon. And if you look here, what you can see is it goes back, this is the back of the cave. And so all those lumpy things are like little rooms off of the colon as stuff goes through. And if you cut it, because it's in virtual reality, I can cut it in cross-section. Now, you know, I mean, a colon, that's like what you use to make a sausage with. It's, it's very thin, and it's about like a couple of millimeters thin. Well, you can see the hole versus the wall size. That's 15 millimeters thick instead of two. So that is swelling, and that's the uh, indication that you have Crohn's and not ulcerative colitis, because the white blood cells are basically digging into the sides of your colon, and that's why this part is sort of swollen. You want to hold my colon? <laughs> you can pass it around. It's, it's, it's sterile. But seriously, I think this idea, you know, what I've been saying is that first-year medical students should get in the MRI, get their own bodies that they can then look at on their laptops. I mean, you're just like a gaming computer, right? And, and you can do 3D printing. We're going to have every undergraduate in the Jacobs School of Engineering do 3D printing as part of being a student, right? Well, why not get to know your body? How many of you know what your colon looks like inside you? Why? Don't you? What's that about? It's you, right? Well, money. So the point is that all of this is, you know, once you have the MRI, the money's been spent. The question is, are you going to learn anything from it? And that's where I think, I think this is going to come a lot more common. Anyway, um, the question is, well, why did I have this disease. And so I started reading the literature. This is from a Stanford professor. And it's amazing that even today they'll say, well, we don't really know why you develop IBD. And that's one of 80 autoimmune diseases that the NIH recognizes, right? There's also MS and psoriasis and uh, on and on. But evidently, it has something to do with your human genome being something a little squirrely with it. The immune dysfunction, we've just seen my immune system, that one variable in the immune system is 125 times higher, and microbes in your gut. 
Now your colon is your largest immune organ. That's where most of your immune cells are. And that's also where the 100 trillion microbes are. And so they're in constant contact with each other all the time. So I decide, well, I'll just quantify all of them. So human genome, I've had my human genome sequenced now several times, and it turns out that even though it's about six billion bases long, there are a million of those points along the DNA where 90% of all the differences between people on Earth occur. And so when you do 23andMe, you send a little spit in and they sequence it, uh, that's what produces that. And you can see here along the DNA that where there was a, a C and a, and a G uh, up here is now a T and an A, whereas all the others are identical. So, so it's where you differ by just one at one point along the DNA. Well, if you go into 23andMe, and I, I, I had joined in 2008, now it's 2012, four years later, I went back and typed in Crohn's and up came this chart. And these are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 of the million positions that are known to be associated with people that have Crohn's. And if it's red, that means you're more likely to have it. You're, you have a genetic mutation or that makes you more likely. If it's green, you're less likely. And sure enough, I had this big red thing, which is one of those letter switches in what's called interleukin-23 receptor. Now, I had absolutely no idea what that meant. But it turns out that you've got a bunch of signaling molecules in your body that are, some are inflammatory, some are anti-inflammatory called cytokines. And uh, they have different numbers from one to 17 and so on. Anyway, uh, so I said, well, what is that? What is interleukin-23? Well, fortunately, because uh, all of the scientific literature is now available on the web and in the university, thank goodness, you can get free access to this. Where you live, if you're off the camp, if you're not part of the university, it can cost $30, $50 an article. Now I've read six or 700 articles. You can understand why that would be a problem. So one of the things that I'm very keen on is that we get uh, the public able to have the same ability to read the literature as, as I did. Because here, uh, I find right away, it's a master regulator in Crohn's disease. That's the title of an article. <laughs> Who knew, right? But you don't need to know what all this stuff is. You just need to be able to search the literature and find out what has been discovered scientifically. And in fact, I then started uh, talking to 23andMe and convincing them that what they should do is let's take 10,000. They have a, a million people now that have sent in. Well, let's take just 10,000 of them that have reported they have IBD and find out where along their human DNA are these changes. That's many more times people than any scientific study has done, and they've just about completed this now. So this is crowdsourcing, using the public to actually create the science by volunteering their data. Well, like I say, if the immune system is closely, closely tied into the uh, microbes, I started reading about the microbiome. I didn't know. Did you know you had 100 trillion microbes? I mean, I didn't. And um, you know, it wasn't talked about or anything like that back in the early 2000s. But it turns out that you have 10 times as many microbes, bacteria, cells in your body as you have DNA-containing human cells. 
So they call you the host, but it's like if you were in a company and you were had 10% ownership and the other had 90% and you called yourself the owner, that would be kind of weird, right? Anyway, it's worse because the genes, each gene on your DNA makes a protein. You know, we talk about the marvel of having read the human DNA, but it turns out that the DNA of the microbes has 300 times as many genes as the human. And each of those make a protein, right, that does something in you. And so this, and none of this is in medicine. None of the microbiome is in medicine today. But it is so rapidly changing. And as you'll see, UCSD has become a great leader in this. So to give you an example of how quickly this has changed and how quickly it's come into the public discussion, cultural discussion, these were the special issues of science and nature in which all these articles were produced by <clears throat> uh, telling the results of the Human Microbiome Project, which was a quarter of a billion dollars that the National Institutes of Health spent on scientists to take several hundred healthy people, mainly, it looks like, medical students, um, <laughs> that were handy to where the sequencers were. Um, but anyway, uh, so that was in June of 2012, and already that same month, it was the cover of Scientific American. And you'd say, okay, well, you know, Scientific American, right? Two months later, it's the cover of The Economist. Really? So it's, it's now at the center of policy discussion. <laughs> That's what The Economist covers. And cultural discussion. And um, so I said, well, okay, how am I going to map this? Uh, this is about as technical as it's going to get. These are pictures of the gene sequencer at the top that I used, uh, that, that uh, the uh, Craig Venner's Institute sequenced uh, samples of my stool. Then the data came back on a big hard drive that they FedExed, and I gave that to the supercomputer center, and they took 32 gigabytes worth of just A, T, Cs, and Gs <laughs> onto the supercomputer, we burned 25 CPU years. That's like running your laptop for 25 years. Um, and we started, we looked at my DNA in, in my stool. Then we pulled down over the internet all of the genetic sequencing results of those 255 healthy people from the Human Microbiome Project. And then there were a few, uh, five or six, that were, had IBD that I could compare to. Altogether, that was seven trillion bases that we had to run through the computer, and that's why it took a long time. Also, one reason you don't see a lot of this being done is most people don't have supercomputers on their campus. Now, I'm gonna show you the results, but before I show you the results, I've gotta give you just a little way to think about biodiversity. So, this looks pretty biodiverse, right? Frogs, snakes, uh, gorillas, birds, goldfish. But in fact, these are all vertebra. And vertebra is a subphylum. So phylum is the largest uh, division of, of biological diversity. So now let's consider other phylums, like the insects. They're not vertebrates, right? They're in a separate phylum. And then the shells, the mollusk, and the earthworms, segmented worms, and radially symmetric things like starfish, um, and then jellyfish and corals, 
that's another phylum, and sponges, <laughs> that's another phylum, right? So there's seven phyla. So imagine that level of biodiversity. That's what's inside your large intestine and the microbe population. Seven different phyla. Now there's actually more than that. Those are the dominant ones, six or seven. So in terms of a pie chart, here's what, our, what we found. The healthy person, um, you don't really care that the blue is bacteriotes up here uh, and the red is formicides. Those are just the names of the phylums. But imagine, you know, this is vertebrates and this is insects and so forth. So, uh, you know, it shows you that about 90% about is blue and red, let's call it, uh, types of microbes that are in a healthy person. But then if you look over here on the right at the uh, iliochrones, these are the uh, normal kind of crones, you'll see that that blue that is over three quarters of the ecology is this teeny little sliver. It's been reduced 50-fold. So think of it, this is an ecology, right? It's all these different species together, all these different. Think of a oak forest before and after a forest fire. Before, it's all dominated by oak trees. After, there's no oak trees. And what happens? All this stuff comes up from the forest floor that had been shaded out, right? Well, that's what goes on inside of you, evidently, when you have a disease like this. And over here is ulcerative colitis, which your doctor will have a hard time with a colonoscopy telling which you got by just looking at you. But look at how wildly different. You see the green? That's E. coli. And in ulcerative colitis, that dominates, evidently, whereas over here in Crohn's, it's hardly there at all. And certainly in healthy people, it's not there. Right? Now, here's me. And it turns out that because I have Crohn's in my large intestine, I have a combination sort of between this. So, you know, even though they say, you know, the disease has two kinds, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, it's actually a spectrum because it depends on all the changes in your genome and how that interacts with your microbe and everything else. Um, and so you'll see that I've got more green than the Crohn's but less than the ulcerative colitis and I've got more blue than the, uh, uh, say, iliochrones. Ilium is just the small intestine uh, than this. So what it indicates is that by maybe looking at the microbes, remember this is just from one little, like the end of a Q-tip, on your toilet paper. <laughs> that much data comes from that. Maybe it could actually tell what disease you've got. So we put it through the mathematics and this is just a way each dot is a person. And the blue dots are the healthy people and this is in a statistical way that we can average across the entire structure of that ecology. Uh, so imagine around that pie graph we just integrated it all up. Um, well, all the blue stick together. And this is just the only input to this graph is genetic sequencing of a little dot of stool. Now each gram of stool has a billion of these bacteria in it. It's the most information rich material you've ever laid eyes on. And what do you do? To, do you respect it? No. You flush it down the toilet. Would you flush your disk drive down the toilet? We need some changes in attitude. Here's the ulcerative colitis, here's me with colonic Crohn's, and here's the iliac Crohn's. So by just a little dab of stool, 
the information content is able to tell which disease you have. Without a doctor, without any exam. Now, this is very preliminary, but it's a teaser for what might be a whole new way of figuring out in a non-invasive way what is wrong with this and finding it out early enough that we could do something about it. Now, a huge change happened a year ago when we fought a dozen of the best universities in this country from the west coast to the east coast to recruit this person. And Rob Knight, who happens to be about half my age and is vastly more, publishes vastly more papers than I do, uh, was a huge win to get him. Uh, and he's now built up a whole lab. And to give you an example of how amazing this guy is, he recruited 25 people to his lab, started with an empty room for building his wet lab, built up the wet lab, recruited the people starting one year ago in January, and has, during that, has by the end of the year, sequenced 50,000 genomes of bacteria, of samples. Really? That, you know, this guy is good. So naturally, I was so thrilled, I took him an offering, which is my carefully stored and frozen stool samples that I've taken uh, like every month or so to get my time series. And just, and this was like in April, we were still building lab up. He's now sequenced it all, and here's the result. So the, for the first time, I have a time series now of how my ecology is changing. Each of those colors is, again, one of these phyla. Uh, and what you can see is it oscillates up and down, just like we saw the immune variables were, right? There's hardly anyone on the planet that has this level of detail of what's going on inside of them. But the next step is to go back, now that we have this variation, I mean, what's, you know, what's causing that spike? What's that spike? Why is it down here? Something's doing it. I mean, these are, these are huge changes in the ecology. Well, we're going to go back to all of those hundred graphs over the same period of time. They were going all up and down everything. We're going to, I actually kept my symptoms. Anything was wrong with my body, I, every day I just wrote down a piece in a word file. And then I've been able to go back and you know, look at that now every week, say, average it out every week over those years. So we, the next stage is to do the mathematical analysis, do the science of the dynamical system that is me. And for the first time understand how the microbiome and your immune system and your other variables are interacting. And once we know that, because it's episodic, it can guide therapy. When do you do, you know, take certain medicine or food or whatever? Um, and so uh, you might say, well, that's all good for you, Larry, but you're just one person. You're just an in of one. We're not going to have know what to do until we do uh, hundreds of people or thousands of people, right? Well, fortunately, Dr. Sanborn, who's the head of GI here, who was 20 years at Mayo before we recruited him in 2011, has been built this biobank and is from all of his patients taking blood from which we can get their human genome, figure out what SNPs they have, and their stool samples. And then we have I asked him to carefully pick, he and his team, 50 of the patients 
that span the space of male, female, when the first onset of disease, where along the uh, you know, uh, GI tract is the inflammation, what pharmaceuticals have you had, you know, like antibiotics or, or immunosuppressants like prednisone, um, and what surgery have you had. So for the first time, we're gonna get a map now of the disease state as it manifests itself in terms of the fundamental software in your body, the DNA in your human and microbe cells. That's science. It's not what, it's not medicine, but it will be. <laughs> um, because medicine is adapting, that's what it does. It adapts as new science comes along. And so Sanborn, being a leader in the country, and we're fortunate to have him here at UCSD, is, of course, a collaborator of this. And once this knowledge is imparted to him and it leads to new ideas for therapy, he'll be using it. And I'll show you an example of that. So we've just been awarded a CPU century. That's running your PC for 100 years to analyze uh, all 50 of my data points that I took in the box back in April. Uh, we're going to do this this year. Uh, and uh, all of his 50 uh, IBD patients and the 300 ones that and we're going to get another one or 200 that have been done since by the NIH and compare them. Well, this work so impressed the chancellor uh, and Rob's Knights coming here that he launched um, uh, in October, the end of October, the Microbiome and Microbial Sciences Initiative. Rob has formed the Center for Micro, uh, Microbiome Innovation, uh, which will bring all kinds of new technology to bear on this. Seminars like this to the public, scientific seminars like we had several today, uh, we had two candidates here, so in some of the best universities in the country that we're trying to recruit to join this team. Um, we are setting up and enlarging our instrument cores, and we're having seed grants fellowships. So this is a full-on press to make UCSD one of the top, if not the top, place in the country. And here already are the faculty that are in the leadership. And you can see it's from pediatrics, from pharmacy, from biology, from computer science, from um, Scripps Institution Oceanography, Cal IT2, and so forth. This is just the leadership team. When that, uh, you know, Rob uh, and, and Kit uh, Pagliano developed this initiative, when that was um, uh, announced, within one day, 100 UCSD faculty wrote in and said, I want to be part of this. So, um, let me just take it out a little bit as to what that means. Um, this is from a, a book, The Missing Microbes, and this is the last 50 years and the incidence of single microbe diseases like mumps or measles and so forth. And you can see it's plummeted. We've learned how to deal with diseases caused by single microbes. But in the same 50 years, the chart on the right, Multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease, just autoimmune diseases, diabetes, asthma, um, I would say you could add in obesity, maybe even autism, are in this huge rise. And this book, which I recommend everybody to read by the doctor who was at one point the um, uh, head of infectious diseases for the CDC, um, says, argues that our overuse of antibiotics 
as well as what we have substituted for real food in this country, uh, is what is driving these modern plagues. So public health is still about microbes, but now you've got to talk about the system. Most of those microbes in you are doing you incredible services. And when they're reduced 50 to 1, you're crippled. You're, you, you have a disease, a terrible disease, until you can get them back into healthy. Now, one of the things we talk about here in this series is uh, cultures and uh, various disparities. What I'm just amazed at is how much we are going to learn from indigenous people that have not been westernized. If you look here again at this graph, each of these uh, colored dots is a person. These are the ones that are in the US. And the ones over here are basically hunter-gatherers from Africa, uh, South America. And you can see there's a huge gap. They're nothing like us. We've lost all of these microbes by our process of westernization. Now, the most remote tribe in the Amazon that hasn't been involved with Westerners for 11,000 years, they recently went to, and they were able, nature and science reported this, on uncontacted Amerindians. And the result, notice that Rob Knight is one of the co-authors. And he has been to, in Africa, uh, some of the other uh, tribes to get these data. This is precious data. Every indigenous people, all the indigenous people around the world, whether it's in Australia, or the Aborigines, or the Pacific Islanders, American Indians, when a Western food diet of sugar and refined flour shows up by the barge full, they become obese just as the whole world is now, that this country is on a huge obesity. And there are huge disparities in the reaction to obesity. African Americans, Hispanics, white, male, female. And we can only understand that by understanding the genetics, the epigenetics, the microbial genetics, as well as the environmental impact. And from this science paper, our work emphasized the value of the deep characterization of microbiomes of people living ancestral lifestyles, particularly of practices in industrialized societies, might eradicate potentially beneficial microbes and their encoded functions. That is, you don't have them. They do. We have a lot to learn from them. And it's more than that. It's not just about your gut. Dr. Perlmutter who wrote Brainmaker and before that Grain Brain, talking about a lot of the things that gluten does to you. Has, he's an MD uh, neurologist for 30 years practicing. And what he's pointed out, as a number of people have understood now, is that there's a very tight coupling from your gut to your brain, starting all the way back during early development. And then when you say you have a gut feeling, follow your gut, you know, Jack Welch, Okay? That's scientifically based. And in particular, the brain can tell 
what your microbiome is like. And if you get under, if you have a very big distortion microbiome, it changes the brain. And a lot of neurodegenerative diseases may be directly related to that. Food is a thing that you put in this end of the tube. It goes down until it gets to the microbes, and that's what they live off of. So if you change the food, you can change the microbes. And, and so the New York Times had this article that came out uh, back in 2012, just as the human microbiome was coming out, and it says, tending the body's microbial garden. So what I think you need to do as a fifth-generation horticulturalist in my family is we have got to learn to garden, not kill. That's the metaphor for getting rid of microbes, right? We're going to kill them. We're going to put in antibiotics. We're going to wipe them out. That's not how you garden. Because most of those microbes are critical for your well-being. And if they get upset and they get like, you know, you, you're going to put uh, insecticide on your roses when they get aphids, or are you going to put Japanese ladybugs? Anyway, so the point is that in the scientific literature, we're not talking, you know, crazy California stuff. And in, in, in the gastroenterology American Journal of, right? Manipulation of the gut microbiota, this is the title of the scientific article from 2012, as a novel treatment for gastrointestinal disorders. Um, more colloquially, beyond probiotics, can you hack your microbiome? Body hacking. Can you change your food? Can you change your exercise? Can you change, can you actually manipulate this? Now, the scientific basis of this is what we're going to be learning here over the next few years and around the world. But here's the sledgehammer proof of principle, fecal transplants. So Dr. Sanborn there, when I first became his patient in 2011, I said, would you consider doing a fecal transplant on me? That is taking a microbiome from somebody else's stool and inserting it in me. And he says, oh, we don't do that here at UCSD. He now does it three times a week. And Open Biome in Boston has developed a technique of taking healthy people, processing the, the stool into a form that you can just put in the colonoscope when they're doing a colonoscopy, and they, instead of shooting water in, they shoot this in. They now uh, are in 500 hospitals in 50 states, and they've done 10,000 of these. They're 90% curative for C. diff. C. diff is uh, the most common hospital-acquired infection, where you go in and the antibiotics knock off most of the good bugs, they bloom and uh, kill 30,000 Americans a year. Okay? You put in a fecal transplant, you're cured. There is no other medical cure for it. Antibiotics is like 20%. Um, and so that is what I call the sledgehammer approach to gardening. Let's just replace your garden. You know, you dig up your garden, put a new garden in, now we're good. All right? So where we're going is a lot more subtle than that. But this shows it works, at least for this one disease. Well, let me just end. The, you might say, okay, this is crazy, you know, crazy research scientist at UCSD. We thought they were like that. Um, <laughs> look around. This is now possible for you to do. Here's two companies, uh, startups, that uh, 
you pay a money you go down to a, the local there's many dozens of places in this town where you take your arm in they put a needle in and take your blood all those drug tests you know that uh, school teachers and fire and police have to do anyway and then they just track it just like I do they make the graphs right on your smartphone um, I told you already about 23 me they've been around since 2008 doing your human genome um, I do my stool test through <clears throat> yourfuturehealth.com. They've been around for decades. The human microbiome, uh, the American Gut Project that Rob Knight has uh, runs as a nonprofit, Ubiome is a spin out of UC San Francisco's medical school, is a, a startup that measures your microbiome. And then, as uh, in the introduction, you mentioned MD Revolution is a company here in town with a cardiologist MD that runs it. Uh, that um, I'm an advisor to an advisor to several of these, um, uh, that is integrating all of this and then coaching you uh, to wellness. And Arival was just founded. Um, the um, uh, co-founder, Nathan Price, is here giving a bioengineering lecture um, next week. As I said, Perlmutter will be in town next week as well. We've become a place to go. And what Lee Hood talks about is how do we get you, imagine you've got all this data now. It's not in your medical record. How do we get fusion between the consumer-generated data and the medical record, where you go to the hospital or the doctor and get something? And so Lee Hood, this is the guy who invented the gene sequencer at Caltech decades ago. And he's now the father of uh, integrated Medicine, the director of the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle, and he's conceived of 100K projects, taking 100,000 people and doing them like I've done. Now, we just finished last year the first 100. I was, of course, one of them. Um, and um, what that shows is he's saying, look, what's the new world we're in? Consumer-driven social networks, digital revolution, big data, and thinking of the body as a system, a dynamic, integrated, interacting system, system biology, system medicine. And so he uh, has pulled together uh, a company, um, a startup, uh, just in last July, started off. They asked me to be a scientific advisor since, you know, I'm the N of one. And here's their slogan. The secret to wellness isn't a secret, it's science. This is my last slide. That was 100 people. Eric Topol, who's very famous here at the Scripps, um, uh, tweeted uh, last, uh, actually back in uh, 2014, these days it's sequencing 100,000 people or don't show up. And then he's just showing, here's the 100K project, here's Google's project, here's Craig Venner's Human Longevity here in town, and so forth. 100,000 people. We just did 100 last year. It's breathtaking how quickly this is going to scale. And from all of that, we are going to be able, finally, to really know ourselves, but to know ourselves within our society, our culture, and the variation across all of humankind. So what's the future? Citizens with vast databases outside of medical records, 
doctors have to part, learn to partner with super-informed patients. We're going to add, add to pharmaceuticals, I think, a whole new generation of medicinal foods, and many of those will take the place and perhaps be more effective than pharmaceuticals. And instead of having a sick care system, which is what we have today, where you don't go and use it until you're sick, we actually turn it around like we did for our automobiles and we maintain wellness by adapting our lifestyles, changing, making better choices uh, as we go along. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.